You're listening to The People's Podcast. I was honest. Was I brutally honest? Yes. But I think that that's the problem. Everybody's so scared to be honest with one another. This is JSC Radio. Let me me shoot straight with you. When I finally got around to starting this podcast in March of 2016, it had been an idea spinning around in my head for about a year. And I was in the process of kind of crowdsourcing ideas and getting getting things together as early as really as late 2014 before I moved east. And by the time I got out to New Jersey and I was starting to put the brainchild together, I was fired from a previous job rather unexpectedly. That kind of threw everything into a tailspin. And no, I'm not talking about the Disney cartoon from the early 90s. So I went into survival mode and basically it was a year almost exactly a year when I was finally able to get this puppy off the ground on March 14th, 2016. And if you go back and listen to episode one of this show, it sounds obviously very different from where it does now in terms of the equipment, in terms of my confidence, in terms of the content, everything. I was scared as shit. When I first did this show, when I first did this podcast, because I didn't know if anybody was really willing to listen. I didn't know if anybody was really willing to invest that kind of time into listening to me at least once a week, because there have been weeks that I have done two shows. I think there was one week where I very foolishly attempted to do three. But there have been weeks where I wonder, is anybody actually willing to listen to me, to pay attention to me? this mid thirties journalist slash goofball slash radio talent slash asshole get on here and talk about any and everything. Initially, the idea was for this to be a sports podcast and by and large it is. But as again, if you've listened to this show over the last two years, it's been everything from a sports podcast to an entertainment podcast to a hip hop podcast to a pro wrestling podcast to a social commentary slash borderline political podcast that got a few ass cheeks over at another place tightened up when I did a couple of episodes here. But now it's like, JSC Radio, albeit it's not where I fully want it to be yet, but you guys have made every week I do this show worth it. Check it out. This is the best of JSC Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. Hey now. My name is Jay Scott Smith, and you are listening to the best of JSC Radio for the year 2018 against all odds, against 
all expectations against every single thing that has seemed to just have come down the pike in this weird, beautiful disaster of a year. We made it to the damn finish line. Welcome once again, my friends, to the podcast that never f***ing ends. J. Scott Smith here. I want to thank y'all. I hope you enjoyed your Christmas. You had a wonderful holiday as we get ready to enter 2019. Damn, 2019. I turned 40 in September of this upcoming year. That is is crazy. You want to know what else is crazy? How many podcast providers this damn show is on? Starting with Apple Podcasts, iTunes, we're on SoundCloud and Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Audio Boom, Player FM. We're on Castbox now. We're trying to get onto Pandora with this damn thing. Don't forget as well, the show is on iHeartRadio and Spotify. And if you happen to have Amazon's Alexa, either the Echo Dot or whichever one of the Amazon Echoes that are out there, you might actually be able to get Alexa to play this damn show on the speaker. Try it out. Tell Alexa to play JSC Radio. Let me know how that works out. I want to thank y'all for supporting me up and down the ladder on social media. I'm J. Scott Smith. That's J-A-Y-S-C-O, two T's, S-M-I-T-H. I am verified on the Twitter machine. Original. The show is also on Twitter at JSC Radio. We're getting bigger and better each single week on Instagram at J Scott Smith as well. We're all over the place, as has the year 2018. The level of growth that this podcast has shown, it's been one of the few things in this borderline disaster of a year of mine that has just been steadily growing. This show, this show is going to be different. This is a show that's going to look back at this year from all different friggin' angles. It's going to look back at the best of the, the, some of the best moments on the show. It's going to look back at some of the best interviews on the show. And of course, it's going to highlight some of this show's best segments. And if there were ever, I mean, there were plenty to choose from. If you go on to SoundCloud, for example, and yes, it's another cheap plug. If you go on to SoundCloud, for example, I've got a whole list of some of the best of interviews, some of the best shows in the show's history. A number of them have come in this calendar year. Talked about so many different things and had so many different things hit during this year that it's almost easy to kind of get lost in the shuffle when you go all the way back to January. Also, I can't help, but before I go into this, I want to thank my man Awesome Jones, whose track, Blue Chucks, Works as the intro song for most of the episodes of the show. You heard it when we came in. Big up to my man Doc Illingsworth, whose album You're No Fun came out back in September. He's been the producer of most of the soundtrack of this damn show. Chris Pritham tossed a couple tracks my way, and that's been used on here. Big up to everyone who supports the damn show, top to bottom. Shout out to Detroit City, those brothers do great work here. You're going to hear some a little bit of them later on in the show, too. They put out a new Christmas song after the Christmas episode came out. All of y'all who listen, all of you who support, to those of you who put the show out there, and as we go through this episode, I will be thanking a lot of you because I can't get it all in in the intro because we got to get right down to business here. This was a year that had some groundbreaking episodes, some big-time moments, and there was a ton of reflection from me on this show. And one of the most, I guess I could say both infamous And, well, one of the most over-episodes we've done all year was episode 85 back on September 12th. That was the interview I did with Brittany Noble. 
And you'll hear a bit of that later on in the show as well. But that was the episode where I talked about being a black journalist. And the opening monologue to that show got a lot of response. And for those of you who are new here, if this is your first time, welcome. Damn it, welcome. This is a good way to catch up. I would also suggest subscribing to the show. Go back to 2017 and 2016 to get yourself up to speed on those years as well. Because we start the best of 2018. We kick it back to September 12th, episode 85, where I talked about the life of being a black journalist. My name is J. Scott Smith, and you're listening to the best of JSC Radio for 2018. And let's get down to business. For the better part of the last 15 years, I have worked in some form or fashion in radio. And by and large, since I was 16 years old, which is 23 years ago, good God, I have been a black journalist going back to when I was in high school. And being a black journalist, by the way, I'm a member of the National Association of Black Journalists. Being a black journalist, for any of us who have worked in newsrooms, is a uh, it's a perilous gig when you think about it. But not from the aspect that most people would realize. Yes, you're out in the streets and you're telling stories and you're getting news and you're going to these venues. But oftentimes, simply being a journalist makes you a bit of a target and a bit unwanted. But the thing is, if you're black and you're walking in there, and it's even extra if you're a black woman, you're kind of seen as being out of your element and out of your place. But you don't just feel that way when you're out covering a story. You feel that way in your own newsroom. It's a feeling that I've experienced. It's a feeling that the young lady who's gonna be talking to me later on in the show, Ms. Brittany Noble, has experienced. It's something that has been relayed to me by numerous black journalists before, young and old. That is difficult doing what we do, and it is. Right now, I'm on the outside looking in. You know me, I don't bullshit. I'm not gonna cut, I'm not gonna cut corners here. By the way, you first timers might notice the language gets a little salty from time to time. This is actually one of the cleaner episodes you're gonna experience, but still. I, I, I don't BS people. I'm on the outside looking in right now. And a fair amount of that is because I'm not one to take crap off people. And when you're not one to take crap off people, especially if you're a black man or a black woman or brown, life becomes a little bit tougher for you. Now, that's not to say I haven't had a multitude of amazing experiences. I've talked about it time and time again on this podcast and in other places. I've had some experiences as a journalist I wouldn't give back for the world. Sitting in the press box at Comerica Park the night the Tigers made the World Series in 2012. That's an all-timer for me. I still get goosebumps talking about that going on national radio on NPR, talking about the presidential races, being on MSNBC, talking to Tamron Hall, having had stories in Newsweek magazine and Vibe magazine, having done all these really super cool things, having written for my hometown newspapers, both of them, the Detroit News and the Detroit Free Press, being able to cover everything from high school football to Major League Baseball, from community meetings to murder trials, having gotten exclusive interviews and having been able to talk to people who normally don't talk to too many others. 
and getting their stories told. That's the great part about what I've done as a journalist. And who knows, maybe I'll get another opportunity to do it. Right now, I'm not sure. But I'm not going to sit here and act like that everything is sweet. I'm not going to act like shit's sweet. It's not. It's hard. It's really hard. And you can read every study. You can do all your research you want to. But if you're one of us and you've ever grabbed a microphone or grabbed a notepad or grabbed your laptop or sat down at a desk or stepped in front of a camera, you get what this is for us. To be a black journalist means you're not only simply being a messenger for truth and for getting the story right, you're also seen as a representation of your entire community. You're a representation of all of us. When I grew up in Detroit, one of the main names that I will always remember from early television back in the 80s, or watching television back in the early 80s when I was a little kid, I should say, was Carmen Harlan. Carmen Harlan was a co-anchor on WDIV Channel 4's 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 11 o'clock news. It's known as Local 4 Now, WDIV. What up, though, Kari Hobbs? My man from Detroit City, Ruth Jones. He's actually over there at WDIV right now. Carmen Harlan was a black woman. A black woman anchoring local news was not something that you generally saw back then. Now, remember, I just turned 39 last week. So this is, you're talking about the mid-1980s. This was still a thing around the country where black women and black men were anchoring newscasts around the country where it's a big deal. And you rarely saw a black man and a black woman at the same desk. At the desk with Carmen Harlan was Mort Krim. Mort Krim, for those of us in Detroit, Mort Krim's voice is iconic. It's legendary. He still does the occasional spots for Magic Windows. And I know he's shown up on rap albums occasionally doing voices and shown up in music videos. He's also the inspiration for the Ron Burgundy character in the movie Anchorman. But Mort Krim, he was the authoritative voice for Detroit. It was Mort Krim and Bill Bonds over at Channel 7. Channel 7 also had Doris Bisco, black woman, and Diana Lewis. Her daughter, Glenda, currently works at WXYZ Channel 7 right now. Black journalists were not as difficult to come by on Detroit television as they would be in other places around the country. In newspapers, on the other hand, it was a much harder thing. And yeah, I can name a few. Like I, I can name a few. You can have gentlemen... Obviously, later on, I like Bob McGruder at the Detroit Free Press. You had, uh, now you have currently have Rochelle Riley. You had Terry Foster, who retired a couple of years ago from the Detroit News, and he was at the Free Press at one time. You have Drew Sharp, who passed away. But it was getting tough to start to name some of those black reporters. But they were out there, and they were inspirations to us. I first got inspired to become a black journalist by sitting with my late uncle Harvey. He passed away a few years ago. My Uncle Harvey managed the dry cleaners over on Livernoy, near the Lodge Freeway, not far from the Sherwood Forest neighborhood in Detroit. He would come home, and occasionally my mom would have my aunt and uncle babysit me. I'm only two, three, four years old, and my uncle would come home. I remember he would pick up the Detroit News, open it up, and start reading it. 
And me being a little toddler, I didn't know no better. I just see him sitting over there with the paper. So I would apparently I'd crawl or stumble over there and I'd pick up the paper and just start looking at it. I was two. Couldn't read. Well, at least for another few months, I couldn't read. I picked up on shit early. And the thing that that always interested me were the pictures and the comics. And I was even as a little, little kid, I was into baseball. And I would see pictures of the Detroit Tigers or baseball players, and I would just start staring at them and pointing to them and everything else. So as I started learning how to read and understand things, my uncle would point me in the direction of the sports section to where the Tigers were. Again, this is 1983, 1984, when the Tigers were really, really, really good and on their way to winning a World Series. So he taught me what it was, how to read the standings in the American League Eastern Division where the Tigers were at the time. And that's how I first got introduced to sports writing was by simply understanding the standings and seeing that Detroit was number one. And I think Toronto at that time or Baltimore was also there. That's how I got to understand. That was my first taste of being in newspaper. And I always said that if I didn't get an opportunity to become a baseball player, I would love to cover baseball. I would love to be a pro athlete if I can't cover it. So you fast forward to me getting my first apprenticeship slash internship at the Detroit Free Press when I was 16 years old in the mid-1990s. And the energy that there is in a newsroom, it's a rush. A lot of the things you see in movies, a lot of the things you see on TV, I would say the last season of The Wire is about as accurate a representation of a newsroom as you're ever going to see. So I suggest you check that out if you get the opportunity, if you haven't before. But being in a newsroom, it was astonishing to me. But the apprenticeship program I was a part of was with a group of kids from all the Detroit public high schools. So I'm in a newsroom full of black kids. So I don't see the big issue. It wasn't until I got to college and it wasn't until I got into the working world that I started to notice that being in rooms full of black people, newsrooms full of black people, was not going to happen nearly as often. And it sure as hell wasn't going to happen in places like public radio. We're saved for stations like WDET in Detroit. My man Jerome Vaughn and all the crew over there. I just saw y'all a couple weeks ago when I was back home for Labor Day and the uh, Aretha Franklin funeral. Aside from newsrooms like that, there aren't too many out there that have a whole lot of us roaming around in them. And that's it's a damn shame. And it's sad. My journey as a black journalist, it is, it is everything from dealing with being the only black guy in a newsroom, which is a jarring feeling when it first hits you. When you look around and you realize you are on that island by yourself, you are alone. I worked when I worked in Lansing, Michigan, I was the only black guy in the room and it was weird. And you find yourself where you're not intentionally trying to advocate for being the quote unquote black reporter, the black guy who covers black stories. But when you see a story that's being covered, especially dealing with a neighborhood, especially dealing with something either in athletics or criminal activity or anything else, and you only see it slotted and slanted in one direction, you have an obligation as a black reporter to stand up and say something. You have an obligation as a black reporter to say, hey, how about we look at it from this angle? Or maybe there's something more to this. Or how about I go manage and handle this thing? because there's a better chance they'll talk to me than they'll talk to you. Or you're gonna get one thing from them. I'm gonna get something else from them. That's one thing you run into. Plus you deal with newsroom politics. 
And newsroom politics can range from everything from personality conflicts to one guy having a little bit more shine and you want to reel him in and knock him down to simply put, even if it's dynamics of of gender, because if you do have multiple black people in a room, you might have one black man, one black woman. And there's going to be newsroom politics. There's going to be the BS. And I'm saying this to the young journals listening to this right now. There's going to be politics. There's going to be bullshit in the room. And there's going to be people who are going to actively invest their time in making sure that you don't succeed. But there are also people in that room who are going to actively invest their time in making sure they do. And in a lot of cases, the people actively looking to see you succeed may not look like you. And the people actively looking to see you fail may look like you and vice versa. And you got to be able to attack that. You got to be able to address that and deal with that straight up. I look at my time as a journalist, especially a black journalist. And that's something I had to kind of wrap my head around. Because for the longest, I always knew I was a journalist. But it's like you have to have moments where you're reminded that you are a black journalist. I had my black journalist come to Jesus meeting. Well, I've had a few of them. But maybe the most recent one came at the last high profile gig. I won't name their names, not because I'm afraid of retribution, simply put. They got to pay me to get their name mentioned on here. But we all know what happened two years ago. Coming up on the two-year anniversary of that disastrous day in November. I, as you recall, episode 23 of this podcast, I let loose the day after the election. Members of the Ku Klux Klan, members of white supremacist groups were literally taking victory laps around the country today. Men like David Duke, and I use the term man very loosely to describe him, were cheering this victory by Donald Trump. The Ku Klux Klan, the Ku Klux Klan endorsed this man multiple times. They were doing robocalls for him in the South. But you're going to sit here and tell me that just because I support Trump doesn't make me racist. Yes, it does. But that podcast effectively was me blowing off steam. I can't totally say that because I did kind of map out where I was going. But a couple of days later, I gave a more measured response. And I told the story of the night that President Obama was elected 10 years earlier. And how I was in Chicago, and I've talked about this before. I talked about it on that episode, actually. That I was in Chicago and made the road trip out there after voting that morning in Detroit. Made the road trip out to Chicago because there was going to be this big party in Grant Park. And kind of a big watch party and the anticipation and everything. And then Obama wins. And it's just this unbridled celebration in the streets of Chicago. And I I BS you not, there were police officers hugging and high-fiving black people in the street as this thing was going down. It was incredible. Fast forward 10 years later and Trump happened. The night Obama won, my mother broke down in tears. My dad couldn't stop laughing, but my mother broke down in tears at the sight of a black president, something she never figured she would see in her lifetime. I broke down as soon as I heard the tears on the other end of the phone. 10 years later, the exact same thing happened, but for different reasons. And I told that story. I wrote it in a column, an opinion piece, very clearly an opinion piece. 
It had been established. Put the opinion editor there, and it was going to run the Friday after the election. That awful week that ensued, and many of you remember how bad that week after the election was around the country for anybody who was halfway sensible. Well, I wrote the piece. It was cleared. The opinion editor thought it was amazing and ran it at 12 noon on a Friday afternoon. By 2 p.m. that Friday, it had been pulled off, the, it pulled off the website by the news editor. The news editor, who has no say over the opinion side. The news editor, who didn't tell me that he'd pulled the piece. Apparently, didn't tell the opinion editor either. So hours later, in the amount of time it took me to get from the office back to my apartment to share it on social, it was pulled off the site, gone. It was days later that I was told that the piece would have been seen as too offensive to Mr. Trump's supporters. Too offensive to uh, Mr. Trump's supporters. Let me read an excerpt from that opinion piece that was deemed, quote, too offensive. Too offensive to Mr. Trump's supporters. Quote, my mother's fears are not unfounded. Millions of black and brown people woke up last Wednesday morning fearful. Muslims and Latinos around this country were wondering what's next and with good reason. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, more than 200 incidents of hate and intimidation have been reported to them since Election Day. A multitude of stories, pictures, and viral videos from around the country, including multiple times here in Philadelphia, have popped up showing everything from swastikas to high school students, York, PA, carrying Trump signs and chanting white power to middle school students in Royal Oak, just 15 minutes outside of my native Detroit, taunting Latino kids with chants of build that wall. Just this past weekend, a University of Oklahoma student was suspended after he targeted black freshmen at Penn. The students were added to a group on the text app GroupMe called, quote, nigger lynching. That's an actual quote. That's the, that's the name. The message came from people using the internet pseudonym Daddy Trump, as well as being punctuated by the phrase Heil Trump. Philadelphia Mayor Jim Kenney and Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf have issued statements condemning these actions almost daily since the election. Quote, everyone is welcome in Philadelphia, regardless of whether they are a freshman at one of our universities or if they've always called Philadelphia home. It's heartbreaking to see this type of activity here in the birthplace of our democracy and in the city of brotherly love. During the campaign, reporters who covered Trump were routinely tormented by people at his rallies and on social media. NPR's Asma Khaled is an Arab American and Muslim, and she wears a hijab. She is often subjected to terrible and hateful messages on Twitter, so much so that every couple of days, she retweets the worst of the worst. ABC's Candace Smith was, until the campaign's final week, the only African-American reporter covering Trump on the trail. She described life on the road. Quote, on Twitter, I've been called, again, this is a quote, a nigger, a C word that I just, I cannot. And at times a combination of the two. One person who claimed to be Christian, as I am, tweeted, you are a Hillary whore and thus cannot be saved by grace. Grace would not have a whore like you. Smith also talked about another common presence at Trump's rallies, Confederate flags. The flags, regarded as a symbol of racism by people of color and many others, 
were prevalent in more than just the South. Quote, I saw them in Pittsburgh, in North Carolina, in San Diego, and in Florida. When I noted the flags, people on Twitter would ask, why was I so obsessed with race? Many of his supporters have said that bigotry didn't play a role in his appeal, that it was simply, quote, economic anxiety that drove so many people to him. For people of color, those observations seem naive, obtuse, or disingenuous. That's what I wrote. It was an opinion piece, but most of what I pulled were not opinions. They were stated facts. They were pulled from interviews, public comments, and statistics. But this station was so worried about offending a Trump voter in the middle of Pennsylvania that the piece got pulled. And in moments like that, it was difficult because being, again, the only black regular reporter in the office and one of only three black producers at the time, it became very, very difficult to look around and wonder, what are we doing here? That a station is more worried about offending some Trump voter out in the middle of Pennsylvania because a piece was written by a reporter that stated facts. But this is what we're up against as black reporters because, quote, the fear of our opinion, I put quote, I put opinion in big quote marks, that we're seen as biased if we dare to point out obvious things that affect black people and people of color. And that's what leads to difficulty in getting stories through. The amount of time I've had to spend fighting to get stories that deal with our community pushed through, not just there, but in other places, is it's mind blowing to me. And I see that because it's a lament that's brought to me by students I mentor, by my contemporaries, by people who are older than me, by people I've worked with. I've heard this before. And they often try to dismiss it as, oh, it's just all in your head or you just don't. No, it's not all in my head. It's how it actually is if you're a black journalist. It is difficult because even the most important stories you have to fight through. You have to push to get through. You have to get the story told and you have to do it without the quote unquote white glance. Because often, even if you write the story, the editor handling the piece is likely white and they may not get it and they'll pull a detail out. The number of times I've had to put pertinent details back into stories because a white editor didn't get it. Again, that's something I've heard numerous times from black reporters. I did a story on black Muslims in Philadelphia. That was a tough piece to push through because there still seemed to be an idea that the nation of Islam accounts for all black Muslims. That's not the case. That black Muslims are dealing with a double-edged sword. That you're not only black, but you're also Muslim and that makes you doubly a target. But that's a story that wasn't being told and I had to fight like hell to get it out there. And so many others have had to fight like hell to get stories like that told or to simply even be respected in their own newsroom. If you're a black woman, the trials are even more evident. You not only have to simply deal with being possibly silenced and shut down and being mischaracterized as angry, that's another thing. You're mischaracterized as being angry or having an attitude. If you're a black man, you're seen as aggressive. Hell, if you're a black woman, you're seen as aggressive if you dare to assert yourself. But if you're a black woman, you also have to account for, more so if you work in TV, you have to account for your looks. You have to account for hair, makeup, your actual body image. Our guest 
on this show is going to touch on a lot of that too during the interview. You got to deal with sexual harassment. You look at what went on at NPR and the New York Times and the Washington Post and in other places, NBC. Sexual harassment in the workplace, that's another target hanging around your neck. There's so many things that being a black journalist, being a good journalist, being a noble journalist happens to entail. And it makes our lives a lot harder. So for those of you who have never set foot in a newsroom, have never as much as taken a journalism course, to understand that to be a black journalist in America, specifically since about 2015, has been one of the more difficult things you can think of. It's one of the hardest things you could possibly do, one of the most difficult undertakings you could ask for. But please understand that we're still gonna do our job. You may not like it, but please understand when you see that black man or black woman on TV or hear them on the radio or see their name on a byline in a newspaper, unless you're at the New York Times where their names have been ripped off bylines, please know that there's so much more shit that goes into it than just simply getting the story right. It's getting the story written. It's getting the story posted. It's keeping the damn story up there. And it's keeping everybody off your ass after you write it. And one of the stories that really gripped this country and honestly gripped this podcast, especially in the early part of the year, was that of the disgraced, quote unquote, doctor at Michigan State University, my alma mater, Larry Nasser. Larry Nasser, back at the beginning of the year, was facing sentencing for a multitude of crimes involving sexual assault of teenage girls and young women under the guise of treatment for gymnastics injuries. And Michigan State University effectively aided and abetted them. This is a subject matter that even led to me making an appearance on ESPN Radio with my man Freddie Coleman back at late January. Let's bring in a friend of mine who graduated from that school, meaning Michigan State. He is Jay Scott Smith, and he is here thanks to Shell Penzo Performance Line. Jay, as a person who graduated from that school, you know a lot of people still at that school. What has been the reaction, not only from you as an alum? There's a lot of anger amongst people in Michigan, in the city of Detroit. Spartan, Spartan alums around the country. I've been hearing from Spartan alumni out here on the East Coast who are just who are absolutely livid at this. I'm personally angered by this. Because I hated to say that I kind of saw something like this coming, but I never knew it was going to be to this scale. This is Penn State plus Baylor is what this potentially could be. This could be something that could devastate not just any of the sports programs. Forget about that. This could devastate the university's reputation top to bottom. But if you thought I was done talking about Larry Nasser, nah, man, we were just getting started. We're going to kick it back to episode 63 when I talked about the Nasser fallout, including when so many of those young women and young girls bravely had to get up and tell their stories in the courtroom. Plus, you may recall this was the episode where MSU president Luanna Simon resigned as I was talking about this during the recording of it. You're listening to the best of JSC Radio for 2018 as we talk about that scumbag Larry Nasser. This is probably the first time I've really been ashamed of my alma mater. I mean, this is the first time I think I've honestly been kind of embarrassed to wear my green and white, to rock my colors, to wear a Michigan State hat. 
one of my MSU hoodies or an MSU t-shirt or something in that, some that area. This is the first time I've really been ashamed because what was uncovered over the last week to 10 days with the, uh, with the young ladies who were uh, giving their victim statements during the sentencing of that bastard Larry Nasser, it just opened up so much into the seedy underbelly of that school and how it works. Now, I mean, everybody knows, I'm not naive here. We all know every single university has dirt, all of them. I alluded to a lot of it last week and I've alluded to a lot of it in episode 40. Every university has dirt. Every university has some semblance of scandal. It's all about the varying levels. Whether it's SMU back in the 80s with their football team being so rogue and renegade that they got the death penalty. That the University of Miami was teetering on that. That Baylor University had dueling scandals in both their football and basketball programs. And then there's Jerry Sandusky at Penn State, and we don't even need to go into that. The thing about MSU that just has kind of jumped out to me in the last few days Oh, and trust me, I'm going to get to Joel Ferguson. The thing that's jumped out to me overall is the level of callousness. Just the total level of incompetence and buffoonery and overall lack of caring and the the lack of of self-consciousness or self-awareness. My school has put out thousands of scholars a multitude of highly intelligent individuals, people who have gone on to do amazing things. There is the, it's more than really a marketing campaign. It's a reality. It's called Spartans Will. If you follow me on Twitter, anytime something cool happens with MSU, whether it's athletically or in some field of academics or socially, and it involves the Spartans, I will tweet the hashtag Spartans Will. Even if it's a guy who went there, like if somebody says something about Draymond Green, for example, I'm going to get Spartans will out there. If I see a Spartan in the Super Bowl, I'm going to say Spartans will Spartan in in anywhere because we're a family. I've laid that out there. I've talked about it numerous times. But to listen to those stories of those girls, I can only well, those girls and women. Well, a lot of them are grown women now with families. But to hear those harrowing tales over and over and over and over and over again, and to think of how poorly the university handled this, how terribly this university failed them, how arrogant and condescending and just overall disgusting they were to some of these girls. All I wanted to do as a kid was go to the Olympics. I was at the height of my career at 19 and the Olympics were just one year away and I just couldn't take any more of the abuse. I was broken. Larry, my coaches, and USA Gymnastics turned the sport I fell in love with as a kid into my personal living hell. The first time I distinctly remember Larry abusing me was at my first US National Championships in Minnesota. I was 14 and ended up not being able to compete because of an extremely painful hip injury. My injury was very close to my pelvic bone. So when Larry put his fingers in my vagina for the first time, I innocently thought it was some sort of internal treatment for that specific injury. Almost each and every time I received treatment from Larry from that moment on, he would molest me. Yet, no matter what 
Larry was supposed to be treating on me over the years, usually my ankles or my knees, his fingers always seemed to find their way inside of me. Around the age of 15 or 16, I would start getting panic attacks before leaving to go to the ranch. One time, I was so desperate not to go, I thought faking an injury bad enough was the only way out. I was taking a bath when I decided to push the bath mat aside, splash water on the tiles, get on the floor, and bang the back of my head against the tub hard enough to get a bump so it seems like I slipped. My parents immediately took me to the hospital because they thought I had a concussion. I was willing to physically hurt myself to get out of the abuse that I received at the ranch. Larry, I trusted you. I believed you were a kind person. You took complete advantage of my innocence. Your kindness was simply a ploy to molest me every chance you got. I can't even put into words how much I fucking hate you. It's mind-blowing to me. Judge Rosemarie Aquilina sentenced Larry Nasser to 40 to 175 years in prison. That will run consecutively. After, somehow, some way, if Nasser were to serve the 60 fed years that he got for the child pornography, he would then serve essentially 175 years. He ain't ever getting out. Never. This is not like a celebratory thing because so many lives were ruined. So many lives have been affected. So many lives have been damaged by that piece of garbage. I laid it out last week. I don't need to keep going into that. So many people had their lives ruined. And now that Nasser is going where he's supposed to go, first to prison and then to hell, the focus has now turned on Michigan State University as a whole. And... That brings me back to Joel Ferguson, because, yes, I was going to go there. I really wavered on whether I would play any of the audio of that horrid interview that he did with Tim Stout, a Lansing sports legend, legendary sports anchor in in mid-Michigan. I'd really kind of vacillated on whether I would play any of the audio from that. But you know what? You have to hear it for yourself. I can't read that. I, well, it's hard to pick out what people want to hear right now. I, I would just say that the uh, the board, uh, the meeting we had the other day was five hours, and uh, talking Luana was ten minutes. We we had so many other things we were going over, and uh, we unanimously decided in that meeting right away that Luana was going to, uh, we were going to support her staying as a president because uh, there's so many more things going at the university than, than just this Nasser thing. I mean, you, when you go to the basketball game, you walk in that um, the New Breslin, and the person who, who hustled and got all those major donors to, to give money was Luana Simon. See, Joel Ferguson is the type of guy that when what went down at Baylor occurred, he's the guy that you run out in front of the camera to say really stupid shit, really egregious, offensive, awful shit. We have more pressing things going on at MSU than this, quote, Nasser thing. Are you out of your fucking mind? This is the single biggest thing you got. I'm a graduate of Michigan State University. I'm an alumnus, a paid alumni association member. That's not an easy thing to do on a journalist budget. I've supported this school through so much. 
but I'll be damned if I'm going to sit here and listen to you try to sell to me that this woman, Luanna Simon, I talked about her last week, should remain president of the university. And the fact that she's still president of the university as I record this is already fucking egregious. But that for you to get up there and try to justify her staying because of the additions made to the Breslin Center. Yeah, I've been in that trophy room. I've been in the Scandalaris Center. I've been over there. It's really fucking nice. Luana Simon needs to go and you need to follow her ass on out. And uh, here's something as I'm sitting here saying this and I'm kind of getting to a different point. I look down and I see that courtesy of my old uh, stomping grounds, the Detroit Free Press and followed up from the state news, the student newspaper at Michigan State University, that uh, Luana K. Simon is going to step down putting a bit of a bow on some of this. She's stepping down. It'll be effective as of Thursday. So pretty much it'll be effective as you'll hear this on Thursday. And uh, it needed to happen. I don't know what the hell took so long. I don't know why she tried to fight this thing. I mean, if there's been a bigger group of fool asses ever assembled in one room, I'd like to meet them. I'd like to see him because that's how the board of trustees has looked for the last week, particularly Joe Ferguson. Think of the words that Ferguson said not even 24 hours ago as I record this about how arrogant he came off, how callous he was. Ferguson, by the way, when Rachel Den Islander, the first one to speak out against Nasser, first sued the university, Ferguson called her an ambulance chaser looking for a payday. When Luana K. Simon walks out of that door, Joel Ferguson needs to follow her. Anybody who, anybody else, any doctor, any coach, any trainer, any employee, anyone, anyone who stood idly by or actively enabled or covered up or shamed or intimidated any of these girls needs to go. And the ill thing about that is that this Nasser fallout continues at MSU. Currently, they're sitting under an interim president, former Governor John Engler. They happen to find a guy who is even more reprehensible than Simon to take over. Multiple reports show the university is still either trying to skirt responsibility, plus they're being exposed for all the things that they were doing to cover it up. Kathy Clagus, the former women's gymnastics coach, she's been arrested. Dr. Strample, who basically aided and abetted as well as harassed students himself, arrested. This is going to get worse before it gets better. Coming up after this break, we take a look back at the best conversations and interviews of 2018, including taking a look back at the episode that truly kickstarted JSC Radio's run in the second half of the year. My name is Jay Scott Smith, and this is the best of JSC Radio for 2018. We'll be back after this. You're listening to The People's Podcast. I was honest. Was I brutally honest? Yes. But I think that that's the problem. Everybody's so scared to be honest with one another. This is the best of JSC Radio. Got a king? Go, Phil! 
Dad. Oh, come on. <laughs> this is WWE superstar Titus O'Neil. It only takes a moment to make a moment. Take time to be a dad today. Learn more at 877-4DAD-411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Hey now, it's Jay Scott Smith here, the host of JSC Radio, which you can now hear on Stitcher Radio. That's right, Stitcher is radio on demand. Now you can download the free app today and it's available on iOS, Android, as well as Nook and Kendall Fire. You can take JSC Radio anywhere. The app is free, you can listen anytime, anywhere. Now if you're wondering what Stitcher is, Stitcher is an award-winning free app that lets you listen to all of your favorite shows, plus discover 40,000 news, entertainment, and sports shows such as JSC Radio. You can create custom playlists. You can rate and review this show and others on Stitcher. Please drop a friendly review on the show. Not only is Stitcher available on all smartphones and tablets, it's also in over 4 million car dashboards. It's on demand and on the go. No downloading, no syncing, no wasted memory on any of your devices. You can stream your favorite podcasts, like JSC Radio, for free on Stitcher. You don't have the Stitcher app? Simple. Go to Stitcher.com today or check out the App Store on whichever device you use. Stitcher Radio. Be sure to check it out. This is the best of JSC Radio. Remember here on JSC Radio, I don't do interviews. I have conversation. Our existence here is different. And that's some of the things that I instilled in Jasmine. And I always told her, you know, you have to fight for what you want. You have to but you have to do be five times better, um, and it's and it's not because you are in any way um, less than someone else. It's because we live in a world that requires that of you because you're black. I didn't get a place to pump milk for my son. You know, I didn't get a, a place to literally. This pump is milk. This is like basic. Crazy. This is crazy. This I is got crazy. an email saying that they would allow me the storage closet during normal business hours. And you and I both know that I don't work during normal business hours. So what is something that you wish you could do over? Is there is there something that maybe you're saying, hey, it turned out really well, but it could have been better. Or did you is there something you maybe missed on that you thought you could improve on and kind of looking being a little self-reflective in everything that you've done? Uh, so for me, it would be with my children. So I raised my daughter and my three nieces. And I think I could have been a better father at times. I think I could have been more focused. Because wow. uh, I wasn't always present because I was trying, I was running from poverty. So what I would encourage for those who are out there who's listening to this saying, yeah, I don't know about these doctors. Hey, I hear you. You're not alone. But this is why it's especially important for you, maybe not even as important to other people, to find the right doctor. The right doctor who understands how you feel, respects how you feel, and works with you where you're at. Because I'll tell you one thing, there's nothing worse as a physician than seeing a patient develop breast cancer because they didn't get mammograms. Or see them get colon cancer because they didn't get colonoscopies or see them have a foot amputated or have them go into kidney failure because they never got treated for their diabetes. There is no reason for that. So whatever issues you have, what I say is, I respect them and I hear them. What we have to do is find the right situation for you.
This is the best of JSC Radio for 2018. Welcome back. Jay Scott Smith here. Once again, want to thank y'all for supporting this show all year long, start to finish, top to bottom, through everything, including the conversations, the interviews. Going to go in order. That was the first clip was Aaron Duke, Jasmine Duke's dad, from back at episode 61.5, talking about his daughter, his amazing daughter, who's done wonderful things. And I'm looking forward to getting Jazz on for her yearly interview as we go into 2019. Then we kicked over to Brittany, Brittany Noble, episode 85. And I'll talk about that episode a little bit more in a second here. But episode 85, talking about her struggles of having to find places to pump milk while she was working in TV in Mississippi. Then we kicked over to my man, Marion E. Brooks, when he startled me with his answer about something that he could have done better in his very successful life. And last but not least, we just headed back a few weeks to talking to Dr. Jennifer Caudill about what she feels you should do in terms of trusting doctors and not BS. I want to thank you all for supporting this show along, of course, all the different podcast providers. And it's almost to the point where there are too many to name. Of course, it's Apple Podcasts, iTunes, there's SoundCloud and Stitcher, there's Google Play and TuneIn, there's CastBox, there's Player FM, there's Audioboom, iHeartRadio, and of course, the Spotify and hopefully coming soon to Pandora. You can follow me on social media at J. Scott Smith on Twitter. That's at J-A-Y-S-C-O, two T's, S-M-I-T-H. I am verified on there. Original. The show is on the Twitter machine at JSC Radio. It's also on YouTube, bit.ly slash JSC Tube. Go to the YouTube page where you can see all of these conversations and coming soon, some of the best bits, best moments, and best takes from the show's history. So, this was the year of the JSC conversation, if you will. And I laid out each one of those in the clips. You want to hear each of them? Go through the archive, subscribe to the show, and hit up the episodes. Also on SoundCloud, I have a listing of all the interviews going back to 2016 as well on there to check those out. Two episodes jumped out in particular. Episode 85 with Brittany Noble, which you heard the opening monologue to earlier in this best of, is still the highest rated and most downloaded episode in this show's history by a mile, by a mile. Brittany's story is epic, and it simply took on a life of its own. I couldn't do it any justice by simply trying to include it on this show. I included the clip. You have to go back to episode 85 and listen to the whole damn thing. It was amazing. She's wonderful. She's still in New York right now. And she's got some big things planned for 2019. And hopefully I can have her back on here again to really play catch up because that interview set the world on fire for her. The other interview, the other episode, I should say, was episode 80. Episode 80 featured Melissa DePino and Michelle Sahin. Now, while those names may not sound very familiar to some of you, those two were behind 2018's most viral video. The video came at a Starbucks in Rittenhouse Square here in Philadelphia back in April when two young men were arrested and escorted out for the crime of waiting while black. Michelle caught the entire thing on her cell phone. Melissa, who she'd never met, tweeted it out, and it set off a firestorm across the country. Well, back in June, 
I sat down and talked with those two for more than an hour, and we talked about everything from their lives coming up in Central PA and New Jersey, respectively, how they met after the whole video went viral, but most importantly, and what you'll hear here, their thoughts on what exactly happened in that Starbucks back in April. My name is Jay Scott Smith, and this is the best of 2018. Let's kick it back to episode 80 as Michelle and Melissa talk to us about the Starbucks video. Describe what you saw firsthand as this, before it goes viral, you're sitting in there and you're watching these cops cuff these two brothers up mm-hmm. and haul them out for essentially sitting there. What did you see? What are you seeing and thinking in that moment as you're sitting there? I want to explain it from the very beginning. Go for it. I saw them walk in from my left and I had been watching them because I thought the one guy was cute. <laughs> I'm going to be totally honest. I was like, he is really, really cute. Or I think he's too young for me. You know, like whatever. I was young. I know. <laughs> you can't tell a black man. I'm like, is he 25? Is he 40? I don't know. <laughs> you know? I, I, can, I can relate to that. So I watched them walk up and they immediately went to the barista and said, can we use the bathroom? And she said, no, it's for paying customers only. And so they were like, oh, okay. And they sat down. And I saw her mouth something to herself. And my first thought was, she just said something racist. But I caught myself and I said, Michelle, you don't know she said that. Now you're being judgmental. You have no idea what she's saying. Just relax, girl. I went back and did my work. Within a few minutes, the cops were there. So I said, huh, I think my intuition was correct. I, I have learned to always, always trust my gut. And she pointed to the two men and she said that they are refusing to leave for not buying anything. And I was, so I was like, oh my gosh, this bitch is lying from the get-go. She is lying right now. I'm watching her. And I look over at the, at the, the, the two brothers and they look up and they look right down. But then they look up again. And I would never forget the look on their faces. It was like, are those cops walking towards us? Hey, right. hey, Dante, don't, don't get no fight with them. Don't get no I saw her lie. They didn't do anything. I know they didn't do anything. I'm watching them. So cops walk over and very quickly I got up to go film them because I was like, you know what? She's lying and I'm not, I, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I need to at least start filming it, right? Mm-hmm. Because at that point there were only like four black people in the whole Starbucks. And that's your voice. That, that just, yeah. When I was saying they didn't do anything because I watched the whole thing, you know, there was a white guy sitting next to me for 45 minutes who didn't buy anything. I saw a white woman come in and use the bathroom. She was mid-jog. I remember she was even, I think she even had purple or pink headphones. She came in, used the bathroom, and she left. And I remember thinking to myself, I wonder if maybe she works here. Maybe she's like here all the time. They just know her. They just like let her in to use the bathroom. Like that was interesting because, you know, like those guys couldn't use the bathroom, but I saw her use the bathroom. So what's that about? And this guy next to me isn't buying anything. So like what, what is like, 
to me, it's like, okay, this is racism. This is clearly racism. So, you know, I'm seeing them try to explain to the cops. They're not listening. I see another asshole cop walk in. He's all agitated. He's wearing the dark blue. If you're listening to me, you're wearing the dark blue. I saw you. You just he, you could just tell that he just wanted to do something. Like, they escalated the situation. They didn't buy coffees. It's a Starbucks. You can't tell me that you don't know people go into Starbucks all day and sit there. You can't tell me that. I've been that guy before. We all have. I was one of those. I mean, actually, no, I, I did buy. I know I did buy a drink. But again, but like, I, I you know, it happens all the time. So, um... You know, the, the Andrew walks in, their friend, and everyone's like, you know, what's going on? What's going on? I tell the girl behind me they're being arrested for not buying coffees. Like, what is going on? And then I hear people start chattering behind me. Um, and at this point now, I'm physically shaking and I'm sweating because I'm like, I need to do something. I don't know what to do. So I went up to the cop and I said, why are you arresting them? And he goes, go ask the barista. And I was like, that's an interesting answer. Why can't you answer me? But fine. So I went up to the barista and I said, why'd you call the cops? And she, her face got all red, her chest got bright red. And she was like, oh, I can't say. And I was like, well, I can say. I saw the whole thing, they didn't do anything. I said, did you feel like your life was in danger? She wouldn't look at me, she wouldn't talk to me. She just kept working behind the counter, which pissed me off. So I said it again. I said, did you feel like you were being threatened in any way, shape or form? And she would not answer me. So I walked back, I yelled. I don't know if I said F word or not, but I said, you're a coward. I walked back to my table. And I'm packing up all my stuff to leave. And I look up and there's like a bunch of white women just standing up and staring at me. And I looked, most and I like made eye contact. <laughs> and she was like, I was just here, I think the, the other day. And I, yeah. you know, I, I come here all the time and I don't buy anything. And you, and I'm going to ask to leave and you know why. And then we all walked out and there was a lot more commotion as we walked out. But I remember I was just, I was just shaking. Like I had a meeting later that evening and I couldn't go to the meeting because I was so pissed off. Like I, like, not only did I feel being black, I, I, I saw it. And, and, and the way the woman was just so dismissive and the way the cops were actually dismissive of me too. Like it was like, I remember the one cop goes, he was like, well, you know, you saw us. We weren't being disrespectful, were we? And I was like, you weren't necessarily being disrespectful. And I said, but do you understand that you're arresting them for not buying an effing latte? And then they turned around and they turned their backs to me because they didn't have an answer for that. And and then I, we were, you know, were sitting outside talking to a bunch of white women and they were like, we can't believe how calm they were. We would have flipped out. And I had a nice little white privilege, um, you know, study <laughs> session that day. I was like, and you would have been able to do that because you're a white girl. And they, and they, they were all in agreement. They were like, yeah, you're right. Yep. Yep. It was, it, it was, it was really, um, they handled themselves very well, but they had a necessity. It's to survive. It's a survival tactic. Yes. It's a thing that we, that, that as black men, we have to do. No matter what. It's, it's, yeah. the, it's the, you want to get mad. You want to get angry. You want to say, dude, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. You want to do all these things. You want to get pissed off, but you want to live. And I keep yes. hearing my dad's words in my ear, just get home. Yeah. Just get home. Don't worry. I know what they'll do to you. Just get home. He yeah. said, I'm 38 years old. My dad still says this to me. Just get home. Don't worry about anything else. Get back to the crib and let the, and at worst case scenario, let your lawyers handle it, but get home. And that's what I can tell from watching that video. And Melissa, you, you sent the tweet, like I said, you sent the tweet seen around the world. What are you thinking when you first see this video and then you, you, 
retweet it and it just goes hyper viral at that point. So the, there was a, there was a, a, a girl sitting next to me and she I didn't actually video it. This other girl videoed it. And when we had all walked out, we were standing around and I was like, somebody has to share this. Somebody has to share this. And she was like, oh, well, you know, so I'll send it to you. Mm-hmm. So I had no followers. I have like 300 followers or something on Twitter because I wasn't really tweeting. And um, I'm like, well, I'm going to tweet it anyway. So I'm like writing this caption and I'm like showing, I kind of, I remember exactly. showing it, Michelle, I was like, I was like, is this good? Is this good? And I was like, fuck it, I don't care. And I just, <laughs> I just, I just tweeted it. And then I was like, I was, I was, I was so mad. I was like the angry white lady, which <laughs> I'm allowed to be. Exactly. Because we, as someone said to me recently, you are the most innocent being on earth, a white woman. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, um, I get called everything. I get called the white whisperer, etc. So, um. I, I, I tweeted it and then I was like, okay, well, let me let me try to share it with, I, I tweeted it at um, DeRay and I tweeted it at Sean King. And I think Sean King was one of the first people. It took a whole 24 hours. Yeah, because I was, I was in New York at the NABJ Regional Conference and it was around the middle, it was on a Friday because yeah. it happened on a Thursday, middle of the day yeah. Friday, but we had heard kind of buzz coming out of Philly about it. I'm sitting in this conference room and I look at my phone and I scan Twitter and I see the video. And the first thing I do is just kind of just sit back in the chair and just shake my head. And I just immediately ask, it's like, what the hell is this? So wait, explain. So, so I still can't get my, like, this is why I have to believe a lot of the reason it went so viral was because a white person was calling it out. It's because like, why, why you, if, if this happened, it is happening every day, everywhere. Why have we never seen it before? I, or is it the white people haven't seen I, it before? I attribute it to, well, for one, the fact that you tweeted it helps a ton because it gave a different voice. It's almost like it allowed people to be pissed off about it instead of just dismissing it as, well, it's just black people. They're just doing this again. But when you send it out, it actually unfortunately lends credence to it. Exactly, which sucks. (laughs) Don't listen to me. (laughs) It lends credence to it. And yeah, we find ourselves in that position where, I've said this numerous times on various episodes of the show that just think about what it would have been like had there been cell phone cameras and digital cameras right. around. I mean, the reason that Rodney King was such a big deal in 1992 was because a guy caught it on his camcorder. Right. And the shit was all over the country within 24 hours, where I'm in Detroit watching the LAPD beat this guy down, but you've heard for years and years and years that police brutality is happening. I've listened to enough of NWA and Ice Cube, and they talk about all, all this different stuff is happening. But then you actually see Rodney King getting the shit kicked right. out of him, and it's like, wow. Now with social media, People can send out videos, but they're at the same time, well, we don't know the whole story. It's that bias that kicks in. And right. there's a bias that if I if I tweeted that thing out, it may get a couple hundred retweets. If you get, you get a white woman from Philadelphia, yeah. boom. Yes. Middle-aged, white lady. I mean, it's like, it's like, oh, well, it must be true. What people listen, don't listen to me. <laughs> well, listen to you, well, but listen, listen to, to us too. That's what, the thing. What, what, white people, listen to me when I tell you to listen to them. Okay. <laughs> and at some point, we'll get to a point where we're act, they actually listen to both of us exactly. at the same damn time. Well, listen you know to what? black women. Listen to black men. Yes. Listen to Latinos. Listen to Asians. Listen to the LGBT when they tell you that this shit is going on. Listen to white women because white women deal with their own wonderful issues. 
hell listen to some white men because apparently that's the only, no. only motherfuckers we listen to half the time. <laughs> you have to be able to do this. So after all this is going on, now the, the tweet goes viral. This thing is everywhere. You got every, you got every Tom, Dick, and Harry trying to hit you up, including yeah. me, trying to hit you up to contact you to find out what the hell is this, what's going on, because that was the total talk of where we were, to the point where a couple of reporters who were at this convention had to get on a train back here to Philly because shit just jumped off. So what is it on your end, and for both of you, as this thing is now really taken off, and how much have your lives kind of changed really in the last six weeks? Because it was only six weeks ago, it doesn't even seem it was that. It was only six weeks ago? It's about about six, about six. April 12th. Yeah, it's about six, eight weeks ago. So two months ago. We're two months I past this say, day. I I'm getting a lot less sleep lately. A whole lot less sleep. Uh, because it's something that we found an opportunity and we saw it work. We saw it work we and saw it's still listen. working. Most of our followers on Facebook, we have like four, like about 4,000 followers on Facebook and on Twitter. And it's a lot of white people. And they're, rep- they're actually reposting. Our information. We need way more. I know you're out there, white people. Follow <laughs> us. Uh, it's P R I V T O P R O G. Privilege to progress. Yes. So, yes. And I have to ask this because we live in the unfortunate age of Trump, <sighs> and the MAGA people are not exactly the the uh, the easiest to deal with. Fuck the MAGA people. <laughs> That is definitely going to be in the promo. So what kind of backlash and pushback and trolling have you gotten from the Red Hat crew? Oh, I, I, I get it. I think she gets it more. Yeah, I've gotten it. almost nothing, which is very surprising to me. It's other white people it's that like are mad at her yeah. for literally trying to but get people together. It's But we're not seeing a lot of it. And I think it's because we're coming at it from an angle of... We are just trying to educate. People. Oh, I, I see it. I see it. I see. It. I mean, I get it. I get. I get. I get white people. <laughs> I get. I get some super racist white people um, coming at me. I'm like, I was I had them in my DM. I mean, they're all over, everywhere. Twitter DMs. They somehow find my email, phone. I got a phone message. I mean, they're crazy. But guess what? I, I got no time for you. Okay, like really, you. I'm not gonna change you. I'm not gonna get you to understand or educate yourself because, you know, there are enough white people who are self-proclaimed liberal slash progressives who are interested enough, who care enough about equality and who care about uh, racism and they, they want to get rid of it and they, they just don't know how. There are enough people that if we even get just those people, mm-hmm. we're in good shape. You know, I don't want, like, if we're the core and if, like, your listeners are, like, the core people that are they're on board, I want that next level out, that next level of million people who might, um, and this is, like, something Sean King said to us. He's like, he's like, you know, maybe that person who puts a frowny face when they see something like racism. Okay, maybe now I get them, instead of just putting the frowny face, to share it mm-hmm. <laughs> and to say something next time they see it in real life. Mm-hmm. So those are who we're going for, right? Yes. And the funny thing about that episode, number 80, is that it focused on the idea of 
living while black and also working through your circles because not everybody has an all black circle or an all white circle. It's getting people to understand. It's not simply tolerance, it's doing the right thing. And by the way, I wanna shout out from Privilege to Progress, which is the initiative that Michelle and Melissa have started. You can follow them on Twitter at FromPriv, P-R-I-V, to T-O, Prog, P-R-O-G, to get more information from them. And of course, you can also check them out at Missy DePino and at Michelle Sahin. That's Sahin with two A's, S-A-A-H-E-N-E. She's actually out in Ghana right now, kicking it with family and enjoying this new year. Prior to doing that conversation in episode 80, however, I also did a monologue about my own living and driving and walking and breathing while black experiences. And one of them in particular, not only uh, struck a chord with a lot of people, but it kind of triggered some really interesting memories and anxiety inside of me when I talked about it. So we're going to stay with episode 80, but we're going to go to the first part of episode 80, where I talked about the almost infamous incident where in 2000, while I was a student at Michigan State University, an MSU cop decided to escort me home. The thing is, I was not expecting that police escort. We discussed that right here on the best of JSC Radio 2018. It's a level of anxiety that follows you when a police officer does the same. It's kind of that reminder that as a black man, you're always in the wrong place at the wrong time, even if it's your place even if it's your home, even if you're going to a grocery store. See, I got to explain this to some of you who don't quite get this, and I'm going to be very blunt. I told you, this is an episode that is as uncensored as it gets, so the F-bombs will be coming. I tend to stray away from that word on this show, but when, when you go through what we go through, it gets raw. You're always carrying the sense of you don't belong here, even if it's in your own home at your own job, in a supermarket or a shopping mall, a car dealership or a movie theater. You could own the business. You could be cutting your grass. You could walk into a CVS or a Walgreens or or a Sam's Club or a Kroger or a ShopRite or a Wegmans or a Meyer, or a Target, or a Walmart, and you always feel like you don't belong there. That at any point in time, someone's gonna demand to know why you're here. And it doesn't have to be someone who works there. Too often we've seen it. We're just average random ham and eggers, see a black man walking around in a store, see a black man walking up the street, in some cases walking in a park with his baby, walking up the street with his dog or with his kid, driving into or out of a parking garage, and some ass clown sees fit to call the cops and question, why are you here? That's the anxiety you feel when a cop pulls up behind you and you're black. Yes, I know white people, you get a little anxious when a cop gets behind you too, but your anxiety often comes from, hey, 
Am I going to get a ticket for this? Are my insurance rates going to go up? A few of you might have weed in the car and you might wonder, oh shit, they might pop me. You want to know what the anxiety of a black man is when a cop pulls up behind him? Am I getting home? That's it. Am I getting home? One of the things my dad says to me all the time, to this day, just get home. I'm almost 40 years old, but I'm still told, just get home. That's all I was thinking the first time a cop pulled up behind me in 1997. Just get home. Three years later, this is maybe the most, truthfully, when I did the Mike story, the Mike piece, and shout out to Brittany Packnett and everybody else over at uh, Mike.com for letting me do that. The more ridiculous yet frightening story I have of driving while black came three years later. And I've talked about this story. I've made references to it in the past, but I haven't really gone into a lot of detail about it. So I was coming back from a party one night. Michigan State University. This is February of 2000. So we're not that far from MSU winning the national championship in basketball. This is a Saturday night. It's my third year at Michigan State. Saturday nights were party night. I think the party was... I think it was at Acres. No, 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 no. No, the party was at Brody. Now I now I remember it. Look, it's been 18 years, man. <laughs> I've done a lot of shit in 18 years. It was Brody. It was a party at Brody Hall. It was in February. So it was cold. And I remember driving to Burger King because usually after parties. And again, you have to understand this is 18 years ago. So I was 20. So eating what I was eating at 2 o'clock in the morning didn't really bother me as much. So I felt I wanted to get a Whopper before I figured out what my next move would be. So I, I got my car. I remember dropping off a friend of mine who was headed in that direction. And then I went over to the Burger King which at the time was on uh, East Grand River, just past Hagedorn, so on the backside of MSU's campus to the east. I'm heading out there. At that time, that Burger King was open to, I think, 4 a.m. because, you know, college campus. And I figure, I'm going to pull through, and I'm going to get my, my, my usual because I was a fast food-eating bastard, and I had a usual at every place I went. Mickey D's, the usual, was the number two. The two cheeseburgers, large fry, and for the longest, it was, a, it was a Sprite before eventually Sweet Tea showed up, and then I just swore that shit off altogether at Burger King. It was a Whopper with cheese, extra pickle, extra mayo, with onion rings, large Coke. You can't tell me that you couldn't go for that right now. So that's what I was going to go do. I was going to go to that Burger King. And then the plan was to either head to Spartan Village, 
to one of the after hours, after sets that was normally happening on MSU's campus, or find something else to get into. At any rate, I get to the Burger King, pull around, make my order, super chill, nothing heavy, nothing major, come around, someone else is in front of me because again, college campus, late night, Burger King. And as I pull up to the window, I just happen to look over to my right and in the adjacent parking lot was, I think it was a quality dairy. Quality Dairy, for those of you who don't know anything about Michigan State University, is a Lansing area. Essentially, it's it's kind of a mini mart. I wouldn't call it a liquor store, albeit they sold all kinds of liquor at the Quality Dairy. But it wasn't just like a liquor store. You get everything from ice cream to apple cider to donuts. They had great donuts. They, you, you could get all sorts of pop. I'm from the Midwest. It's pop, not soda, damn it. You can get all sorts of pop, any sort of snacks, anything like that. So I look over to my right. It's Quality Dairy. Quality Dairies are also open 24 hours. And I noticed in the parking lot was a Michigan State University police officer. And he's just hanging out. He's just sitting there. It's like 2.15, 2.20 a.m. on a Saturday night. He's hanging out, kicking it, chilling. I don't know what cops do that late at night. I couldn't imagine doing what he does. But he's sitting there doing whatever. It's on a Saturday night. I get my grub, set it over in the seat, get the whole setup. Because everybody has a fast food setup. Everybody's got one. And I pulled up just before making the turn, stopped for a second. Nobody was behind me because I'm, I'm, I'm not that rude jerk who just sits there if someone's behind you. Nobody was behind me. I had the drink set up in one cup holder. I had the I had the onion rings lined up in the other cup holder. I got the, the burger properly unwrapped because, you know, I'm a savage and I'm going to eat the damn thing in the car. Because why wait? Because I was trying to figure out the next move. And I get everything set up. Got one hand on the wheel. Ain't nobody coming. I make the right out of the drive through back onto Grand River heading back toward campus. And then seconds later, the cop pops his lights on, makes his right out of the parking lot, and gets behind me. Now, I'm not speeding. It's my car. By this point, it's now a Mercury Tracer because the Sable died halfway through my sophomore year at Michigan State. And I'm just rolling. I'm not speeding. It's 2 a.m. And anybody, again, if you've been on a college campus on a Saturday night at 2 in the morning, People are leaving from different bars and places. Traffic is not exactly speed worthy. My lights were working. Everything was good. So this cop gets behind me and I'm rolling and I could tell it seemed like he was just trying to get someplace like I was because he didn't hit his lights. He wasn't flashing anything like that. So I'm thinking, all right, when a cop gets behind you, you have that anxiety and you just want that dude to get from the just get from behind you. Especially when you know you didn't do anything wrong. So the quickest way about this is to hit my turn signal, get over to the left, freeze up some room. There was a little bit of space in front of me. Get over. The cop will just drive right on by and everybody's cool. Except I got over. He got over. All right. I drive about another quarter mile. He's still just lingering behind me. No lights. 
I get over, and he gets over. By this point now, I've rotated back onto MSU's campus. I'm passing the SBS. I've passed the Peanut Barrel uh, restaurant. At the time, it was Stephen Barry's. I passed that. I remember passing that. On the other side of me, of course, is the MSU Union. I get over, and this cop gets over. So by this point, this son of a bitch is just following me. He hasn't flashed any lights, still. Hadn't told me to slow down or get over, nothing. When I move, he moves. And just like that, I've worked my way close to Michigan Avenue now, and I've now rotated back over to Brody, the Brody Complex. I was staying in the Brody Complex at this point. Cops still following me. And I don't know what to do. Because he still hasn't hit his lights. I try one more time to get to the left, he gets to the left. I get to the right, he gets to the right. I pass through the light, he passes through the light. I make the Michigan left, he makes the Michigan left. I mentioned the anxiety that you get when a cop's behind you. I mentioned that feeling of dread when the cop's behind you. That fear, that anxiety, that angst. And I started hearing my dad's words in my head again. Just get home. Because I don't know what this cop wants. He's followed me this whole way here. I would almost rather the dude just hit the lights and pull me over. But to follow me like that, it made me wonder, what was he calling in? What was he trying to get on me? I make that Michigan left. I then loop around. He follows me through there. I pull into the parking lot in front of Butterfield Hall where I was staying at the time. He follows me there. And finally, pull into this parking spot. By this point, I haven't touched this Whopper. I'm just completely, I'm completely fucked up. And I pull into the parking spot. He lingers up a little bit behind me. And as soon as I make the move to get out of the car, through the bullhorn, I still hear him say, get back in the car. Where are you going? And I'm, I freeze. Because I don't know what the hell's next. I'm scared out of my mind. By this point, I'm 20. Still six foot. About 165 pounds. I had... I think I still had my afro. I literally look like any black man he wanted me to be. He could have shot me. He could have beat me. He could have accused me of charging at him. He could have accused me of making any moves. I instinctively just put my hand up and step back, hands up and step back toward the car. And then he stops me again and says, why are you here? Because apparently I can't just pull into my place. And I'm freezing. He yells at me again. Why are you here? I can still feel the anxiety a little bit. And it's 18 years later. I yell back at the man, I stay here. I am a student here. Show me your ID. So I, I, I pull my ID out. I take a few steps toward the vehicle holding the ID. And I didn't know what the hell ID he wanted, so I just had both my driver's license and my MSU ID in my hand. He looks at both, and then he looks at me, 
and then he just slowly starts to drive away, making it a point to point the flashlight in my direction. And just slowly until he got to the exit and then turned and quickly drove away. I got home. But boy, oh boy. Needless to say, I didn't eat that Whopper. I didn't eat those, I didn't eat those onion rings. I killed the whole, the whole Coke though because I was so frightened and my mouth was dry as shit. It may have barely been 40 degrees that night, but I was sweating fucking bullets. Being a black man in this country is operating under the constant sense that you are never where you're supposed to be. Being a black man in this country means you're always in the wrong place at the wrong fucking time. Being a black man in this country means you're not welcome in 90% of it. And you have to constantly be ready to explain why you're here. It's dehumanizing. And that was 2000. That was before we ended up being taken over by this regime that demonizes and dehumanizes so many of us. That firmly stands behind the type of policing that I just described to you. Because that's the thing. And you see it with the way that these migrant children are being treated. You see it with the way that all immigrants are treated that aren't white. You see it with the way that black people in this country are treated, whether you're American-born or immigrant, whether you're Haitian or Nigerian, whether you're from Ghana, whether you're from Senegal, whether you're, whether you're from Tunisia or the Sudan or Egypt, whether you're Puerto Rican, and you're not an immigrant if you're Puerto Rican, whether you're Puerto Rican or Dominican or Cuban or Mexican or Venezuelan or Colombian or Brazilian, you're not seen as a citizen. You're not seen as normal. You can't operate under a normal set of circumstances like going to get a goddamn Burger King Whopper at two o'clock in the morning on a college fucking campus. When that asshole pulled me over five years later, it pissed me off. I've been pulled over multitude of times for quote unquote taillights and different minor infractions yet never getting ticketed. I get followed around stores. Oh, but you maybe you fit the description. Kiss my ass. Let me make this real clear. If you're white in this country, you're guaranteed humanity to a certain extent. Everybody else, especially if you're black or brown, your humanity is optional. And at any point in time, they feel they can strip it from you or just remind you of your place. And I wish I could say after this episode aired that BS like that had started to cease, but you know, it hasn't. As recently as just about 10 days ago in Portland, a black man was sitting in a hotel lobby talking to his mom on the phone when he was harassed and thrown out of the hotel. He was a guest by a security guard who felt that he was loitering and was posing a threat, you know, while on the phone talking to his mother. Now, that security guard and other employee got fired for this foolishness, but this is what we're up against. This is the point that we've been steadily making. Coming up after this break, we take a look back at some of the best sports moments of the year, including the city of Philadelphia losing its damn mind over these Eagles winning the Super Bowl. And I have to give one final commentary on one of the most problematic black men to ever exist. This is the best of JSC Radio for 2018, and we will be back after this. You're listening to The People's Podcast. The MAGA people 
are not exactly the the uh, the easiest to deal with. Fuck the mega people. <laughs> this is the best of JSC Radio. Imagine being fired because of who you love. Imagine being denied medical treatment because of who you marry. Imagine being evicted because of who you are. Millions of Americans don't have to imagine this. They have to live it. Because in 31 states, it's legal to discriminate against LGBT people. Get the facts at beyondido.org. Brought to you by the Gill Foundation and the Ad Council. So, you know, I'm a dog, and I'm kind of new to this family, but I've noticed a trend. My humans do this thing where they go around and get all my toys and hide them in this basket, but it's always the same basket, and it's always the same place, and then they act so surprised when I find them, but I'm like, hello, that's where you put it last time. Humans are the worst at hide-and-go-seek. A person is the best thing to happen to a shelter pet. Be that person. Adopt. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the ShelterPetProject.org. You're listening to the People's Podcast. And we swagger when we walk, because by God, we can. This is J.S.C. Radio. There's a new dynasty in the NBA. The Golden State Warriors champions once again, back-to-back titles, three in four years, and the latest with a sweep. This is the new dynasty in the NBA. It is. This is the new dynasty. This is the new reality, and all you, all, all you little blog boys who were raised with participation ribbons and trophies, who seem to think that winning is unfair, and this ain't right, and it's ruining the NBA, and it's ruining the league, and there's not enough competitive balance. Curry tries, out it and one. Curry off the glass for the chance for a three-point play. I'm going to need you to sit and spin. I fear the MSU basketball program. One of the premier programs in this country for almost a quarter century is about to turn into Michigan football. Oh, he has trouble with the snap! Michigan football, which all they do is talk about the shit they used to do, who they used to be, about all their 13 or whatever national championships, 12 of which they won prior to World War II, and the only one that they got after World War II they shared with Nebraska. They call themselves the leaders in best, that year after year after year after year after year, they get all these damn five-star recruits and five-star players to come to the program. And what happens? When it really matters, they go out there and get punched in the face and turtle up. Oh, he has trouble with the snap! I never understood the idea that when they traded for Blake Griffin that just automatically made them a playoff team. They were five under 500 when they got him. They only got back to 500 for one day. I think they got over 500 for maybe a second and then lost seven or eight games in a row and fell off the damn table. They were never a playoff team. And to mortgage essentially your future, to do what? Sneak into the playoffs and get DeMar DeRozan again? DeRozan has 25 and a half. DeMar DeRozan, six to go, got all the way to the bottom. Is that, is that what you wanted, Piston fan? Velveteen Dream! My God! A rolling Death Valley driver on the ladder! Have to go to a hardware store. And they're one nearby because these ladders are being treated well like the superstars are treating each other. Dane picking up Adam Cole! My God! Mauro Ranallo 
is a national damn treasure. Hammerlock DDT almost spikes black. Just listen to the energy. What a suggestion. Go find you something in your life that you love as much as Mauro Ranallo loves calling pro wrestling. Black with the black mask. Black mask. New NXT champion. The ABC cameras catch JR with the now infamous meme of LeBron looking like an angered, disappointed parent yelling at his idiot son. And JR says to LeBron, clearly, on camera, I thought we were ahead. You get the feeling JR still thought they had the lead. Everybody in the damn arena, every member of the Warriors, every member of the Cavaliers, everyone in the stands, everyone who works at the arena, the old man with the really cool afro who sits a long press row in Oakland, Rosgold on Wooday at the crib on Twitter, everybody watching on TV, even the motherfuckers that aren't watching the game, all knew the damn thing was tied. Check it out. This is the best of JSC Radio. I say it so often, that this podcast started as a sports show and it does still get real deep in your pockets talking about sports. This is the best of JSC Radio for 2018. Welcome back. J. Scott Smith here taking you through this supersized episode of the show. Aside from the, really aside from the retro reviews and those will be making a return in 2019. Aside from the retro reviews, I haven't had a show go this long really this year. This thing's going to clock in at over two hours because there was so much to get in in 2018 that you just couldn't help but get as much in as possible. Want to shout out, of course, all the podcast providers one more time. Apple Podcasts, iTunes, you're on SoundCloud or Stitcher, Google Play or TuneIn, Audio Boom, CastBox, Player FM. There's so many of them, I almost have to run out of breath. I got to catch a breath to name them all. And do not forget, of course, the big ones iHeartRadio and Spotify. I want to shout out everybody who listens to this show all over the country and all over the world. And I do mean all over the world, not just in the United States, but in the UK and Canada, in Mexico and in India, Bangladesh, all the way out in the Middle East, in Egypt, in Syria, out in Saudi Arabia. Yes, I've gotten some listens out there. Need to be careful what I say, apparently. In the UAE, big ups to people in Japan and Thailand and China and Australia, all across the motherland in Ghana and, and in Algeria. And yeah, I'm getting African listeners too. Shout out to, of course, the people listening in Spain and Germany and up in, in Norway and Sweden. This show has taken off worldwide worldwide in 2018 again this may not have been the greatest year for me personally but this podcast has done more to get me through and done more to get us all through than anything else so we keep on rolling as you can tell by the intro of course i got to talk about sports on this podcast and you heard the sampling of the different things whether it's the warriors whether it's msu the sports side whether it's the pistons whether it's pro wrestling i've been all over the map i've talked about the nfl multiple times the lions just i'll get on them for the first episode of 2019 but one major football story this year did not involve those damn detroit lions it involved the philadelphia eagles the E-A-G-L-E-S, Eagles. 
for those of you who haven't been under a rock this year, Philadelphia Eagles, by the way, shout out to Iraq. I've gotten some listens out there too. The Philadelphia Eagles won the Super Bowl. And they found a way to make a late season run to get into the playoffs this year so they do have a chance to defend the world title. But the day of the Eagles championship parade, I cracked this mic open and talked about what it was that I saw. And my God, Philadelphia... Y'all know how to throw a damn championship party. I treated this thing as a social experiment because out of the hopes that maybe once in my life I'll see my hometown, the Motor City, get to celebrate a Super Bowl. (laughs) But who knows? Kicking it back to episode 65, the day of the Philadelphia Eagles championship parade, my dad's birthday, February 9th. This is the best of Jay. SC Radio. And by the way, Jason Kelsey is a bad, bad boy. Every city has a team that elicits that passion. The Chicago Bulls won six NBA titles in, in what, eight years? The Chicago Bears did the whole Super Bowl shuffle in 1986. People talk about that one team still to this day. Hell, the Blackhawks have won multiple Stanley Cups in this decade and And everyone tends to forget this. The Chicago White Sox won a World Series in 2005. You want to know what the city of Chicago galvanized for? Except for the South Side. The Cubs winning the World Series two years ago. That was their passion. The Boston Celtics won 16 NBA titles from the time that the team was formed all the way to 1986. They won 16 NBA championships. 16 The Bruins won countless Stanley Cups. The Patriots have won five Super Bowls in less than 20 years and have been to seven total. Well, now eight total. It's unreal. You want to know what the city of Boston gave a damn about? 2004, same year the Pistons won the NBA title, the Red Sox pulled off the unthinkable and 0-3 comeback in the American League Championship Series, then going into St. Louis and sweeping the Cardinals, the team that had tormented them in the 1967 World Series, and won their first championship since 1918. 86 damn years. They would have given back all the Celtics titles, all the Stanley Cups, and all the Patriots Super Bowls to that point to get that Red Sox ring. It's passion that drives these people here. Yes, Eagle fans can be a little out of control. They can be a little wild. Things can get a little crazy. Shit gets broken or turned over. Yes, yes, and just to make some of you happy, yes, they rioted. Yes, there were criminals. Yes, some of them acted like thugs. And now that I've gotten that out of the way, I'll go back to talking to the grown-ups. Look, people acted like knuckleheads on Sunday night. But a lot of people had a hell of a lot of fun. And watching it out here on local TV and seeing some of it the next morning when I got up, it was amazing. There were some awesome scenes there of people proposing to their girlfriends. Yeah, it was, of course, very Philly-ish where she's standing there holding a 40-ounce and he's whipping out the ring. But look, we, we, we take it where you can get it around here. There is the scene of people marching through the streets where these two guys from the School for the Arts are up on their fifth-floor apartment and the people are marching down Broad Street. They open up their windows. One guy pulls out a trombone. Another guy pulls out another horn and they start playing the Eagle fight song and they start singing along to it in the street. 
People were hugging each other, crying. Joel Embiid randomly pops up during a live shot on Fox 29 out here. It was incredible. Yes, there were some dummies who jumped up and down on an awning at the and, and completely shattered the damn thing and were doing trust falls off of it. And I still wanna know how the hell that nobody has dubbed Jim Ross's voice into the one guy doing a backwards trust fall into the ground off of that thing. Yes, there was some assholes who went into a gas station, completely looted and vandalized it. Yes, there were some scumbags who smashed in the windows at the Macy's down in Center City. Yes, there was mayhem. Yes, there were people acting like idiots. Yes, there was some dumbass who ate a pile of horse poo off the damn ground. Stop doing that. For Christ's sake, this is Philadelphia, not Cleveland. We're not out here eating horse dung on TV. What the hell? Yes, people acted like wild ass knuckleheads and I will not condone the property damage. I will not condone the car getting flipped in front of the Bellevue. I will not condone the looting and the wanton destruction and the people getting punched in the face. I will not condone any of that, but I will definitely condone people singing and cheering and crying and hugging and people bringing their kids out to enjoy it. There were people crying in courtyards out here at the apartment complex. There were people running and screaming in the streets. An air raid siren went off as soon as the game ended. Fireworks are unloading all over the place. Horns were blowing at two o'clock in the damn morning. This was passion. That's what this was. It was passion. That's what this is. The Eagles are honestly the first non-Detroit team I can truly say that I really love. This particular Eagle team. I love this team. They're some dogs. I know they were doing the whole underdog thing after the playoffs started. But that was a team full of dogs. I just mentioned the Lions come off to me as entitled. They come off to me as if they just expect everything to be handed to them. They expect all the accolades. They wonder why people just aren't happy that they're not terrible anymore. We've been down that road already on this show, and we're probably going to go down that road in a few months. But The Eagles wake up in the morning angry. This team had a chip on its shoulder and was daring you to come knock it off. They were pissed. I love a team that's pissed off. I love a team that's angry. That team was angry. And it all just kind of released out to the world after they won the Super Bowl. I want the Lions to be this angry team that has a chip on their shoulder. These Eagles are real tough guys. And the best example of this, and I'm going to I'm going to say this in the best way I can. Jason Kelsey, the older brother of Kansas City tight end Travis Kelsey, is an offensive lineman here in Philadelphia. And during the parade, he gave one of the most amazing promos you will ever hear. It was so good that I'm going to let you hear the entire damn thing. I'm going to I'm going to let you hear the whole damn thing start to finish. I don't think I can do it justice by simply breaking it down and talking about it. So I'm going to let you hear this entire damn thing to close this segment out because in all honesty, I can't do it justice with simply words. So 
I'm going to let him, another fellow Jason, do the talking. And then when I come in on the back end, I'll break this whole thing down for you. But this is from the Eagles Parade today on the Rocky Steps out in front of the Art Museum. And here's Jason Kelsey letting the whole damn world know how he feels. Everybody wanted it more. 
And that's why we're up here today. And that's why we're the first team in Eagles history to hold that freaking trophy. Y'all Philadelphia. For 52 years, y'all have been waiting for this. You want to talk about underdog? You want to talk about a hungry dog? For 52 years, you've been starved in this championship. Everybody wonders why we're so mean. Everybody wonders why the Philadelphia Eagles aren't the nicest fans. If I don't eat breakfast, I'm fucking pissed off. just said, fuck you! begin i i have heard pro wrestlers who couldn't bring it like that jason kelsey who to understand how ridiculously incredible this was he's up there in a mummer's outfit now for those of you not from philadelphia think of like really drunken union guy in mardi gras costumes that would be what mummers are. They do their thing on January 1st. It's loud, it's drunken, it's borderline racist. It's everything you can think of for a New Year's Day. That's the outfit he was wearing. Go look up Jason Kelsey doing this promo and you'll see him up there looking like some sort of combination of Macho Man Randy Savage and the Grand Wizard, the, you know, the, the manager from the 1970s, not a, you know, another Grand Wizard that we certainly won't get into. That's what he looked like, giving that ridiculous promo. And it's fitting that he gave it in Philadelphia, the home of ECW, because that was an ECW level promo. It's like he channeled Bubba Ray Dudley. It's like he channeled Paul Heyman and a little bit of Matt Foley from Saturday Night Live. He was on fire. The dude got a what chant going during a Super Bowl parade. He got a what chant going during a Super Bowl parade. He then wheels around and unleashes the F-bomb to, I mean, come on. No one liked this team. No analysts liked this team to win the Super Bowl and nobody likes our fans. And you know what? 
I've just heard one of the best chants this past day, and it's one of my favorite, and it's new, and I hope y'all learn it, because I'm about to drop it right now. You know what I gotta say to all those people that doubted us, to all those people that got us out, and to everybody who said that we couldn't get it done? What my man Jay and Josh just said, fuck you! Come on. Come on, bro. If you're going to drop F-bombs on TV and you've got, you're going to have radio stations and TV stations that aren't cable or satellite with their butt cheeks clenched up knowing that they've got an FCC fine of epic proportions on their way, do it the way he did it. Jason Kelsey and that Eagle team showed anger, showed passion. I would take 40 guys like Jason Kelsey in Lions uniforms. I would take that entire damn Eagle team and put them in Lions uniforms because they get it. They are some dogs, not just underdogs. They are the big dog, and I'm not talking about Roman Reigns. This is who he is. This dude is out here tweeting out pictures wearing a red MAGA hat. That hat is essentially this generation's white hood with the eyes cut out. But you're a free thinker. I'm a free thinker. I'm independent. I'm thinking for myself. This is free thought. You are under total mind control, dude. But what's controlling your mind? I have no idea. Because I'm not even sure you fully believe in the bullshit you say about Trump. I think you're just so desperate for attention and acceptance and love from something or someone, something that was never given to you, that you have to go out of your way to be this much of a shithead. Kanye West is not and has never been a literal genius. Kanye's the same narcissistic, shallow halfwit he's always been. It's just that so many of y'all finally see what I've been seeing since at least 2004. 2018 was a lot of things to a lot of people. And it was also a year we got to know who we were really dealing with. In some cases, we already knew. Obviously, in the past on this podcast, I have gone in on a number of subjects. Most infamously, R. Kelly in 2017. But this year was different. This year saw, as you just heard there in the clip, guys like Kanye West finally get exposed for who they really were. And that was back in episode 74. Interestingly enough, that episode actually saw me talk about two guys, Kanye West and Bill Cosby. Because right around the time Kanye was really starting in on his just just foolishness, Bill Cosby was on his way to jail. And I took time because I had never really talked about Cosby in the way I felt about him on the show. And as you would expect, considering the way I was about R. Kelly, the way I was about Me Too, the way I've been about gun control, I tend not to fall on the let's just cut him a break side. And I didn't cut Cosby a break. There were two different episodes I went in on him, but episode 74 was something special. And that's how we're going to close out this best of 2018 show. By going back to episode 74, the same one where I dropped that bomb on Kanye, before that, I was letting it all sing on Bill Cosby. My name is J. Scott Smith, and this is the best of JSC Radio for 2018. The thing about Bill Cosby and men of his ilk, because so many of them, Let's just be real. So many of us, I'm a man. I'm not going to divorce myself from that. So many of us build our 
personas on fiction. Bill Cosby has always been fiction. Bill Cosby, the good guy, the baby face, the altruistic dad, the, the member of the Board of Trustees at Temple University, the goody two-shoes, Dr. Huxtable, Mr. Clean Jokes on Stage, even though he actually didn't tell all clean jokes on stage. That's who Bill Cosby was. And he was a quote-unquote father figure to so many young black men who grew up in the 70s and the 80s and the early 90s. I had a dad in my home. I had two parents in my house. My mother's a teacher, or was a teacher, she retired, has a master's degree in education. My dad's cop, came up southwest Detroit, lots of siblings, didn't initially go to college. He came of age during the Detroit riots, during the civil rights movement. In 1968, he was 18 years old. Bill Cosby was 31. He's a grown man. He was hitting the big time. One of the first, I think he was the first black male lead in a primetime series. But he had, he had a double life. By the time I'm old enough to even know who Bill Cosby is, that's the mid 80s with the Cosby show. And I just thought the show was funny. But it didn't have that clutch on me that it apparently has on so many black people who for so long actually conflated Bill Cosby with Heathcliff Huxtable. That's essentially conflating Hulk Hogan with Terry Bollea or Nasir Jones from Nas. Just like there's a really humorous Facebook series right now called Zach Morris's Trash. I'm able to separate Zach Morris, the character, from Mark Paul Goslar, the actor, the person, the human, the man. Most people couldn't do that with Bill. Their love affair with that damn Cosby show or I Spy or the or the dude in the afro telling the cornball jokes on stage or the let's do it again guy with Sidney Poitier or any of the other shit that Bill has done. So many black people, and I'm talking about a cross-generate, cross-generational, to quote a man, Nate Milton, cross-generational. So I'm talking about black people as old as my parents, all the way to cats 10, 12, 15 years younger than me, bought in because he was the archetype of the good, strong black man. So much so that they were willing to wager that 50 women were lying about him sexually assaulting them. They were willing to wager that it's all made up. Some of them are willing to say, hey, so what if he did it? He made the Cosby show. So what if he did it? He donated to black colleges. He made a different world. Word on the street was out about this man as far back as the mid-1970s. This wasn't some new shit that showed up two, three years ago. Cats were hip to him as early as 1975 that he was out here slipping Mickeys and women's drinks and taking advantage of them. I checked out on Bill Cosby in 1998 when... If you, a lot of you probably remember this, but you just repressed it. I never did. If you recall about 20 years ago, right around the unfortunate time where his son Ennis lost his life, it came out that there was a young woman who was essentially trying to extort Bill Cosby because she was his illegitimate daughter, his secret daughter. Now, everybody knows that Bill Cosby had five kids, four girls, one boy. There was a sixth kid, at least. Turned out that Bill... While the woman was actually trying to extort him for more money, it turned out that this was Bill Cosby's daughter and that he had been secretly paying her mom to keep quiet 
for more than 20 years. When Bill gets up there all those years and professes himself to be this man of higher stock, and he basically took Heathcliff Huxtable to be himself. He's America's dad, the virtuous black man who's all about the family, who chastises the likes of Eddie Murphy for saying certain things during his show. You cannot say filth, flying filth, flying filth in front of people. And I said, I never said no filth, flying filth. Because you know what I'm talking about. I can't use the type of language that you use, but you know what I mean when I say filth, flying, flying, flying filth. And I said, I never said no filth, flying filth, and I don't know what you're talking about. I'm offended that you call. Fuck you. And that's when Bill got pissed at that's what I'm talking about. You cannot say fuck in front of people. And I got mad. The type of guy who was known to call up comedians and go after them about the material they were using on stage, who would sit in judgment piously over people it turned out he wasn't no better than anybody else. And I checked out on him as anything more than just another actor playing a role. And that was 20 years ago. So by the time I see the Philly Mag piece, a few years later while I'm working in Lansing at 96.5, I wasn't shocked at all at the idea that Bill was out here living super foul because I'd heard these things about Bill for years, and unlike a lot of people, I didn't just arbitrarily wave it off as a bunch of quote unquote, desperate women trying to get Bill Cosby's money. Come on, dog. let's cut the bullshit here. A lot of people knew it, but Bill had so much sway, he held so much power, that if anyone actually tried to tell the truth, Bill would make sure you never worked again. And there were enough hangers on, enough yes men, enough people willing to just simply look the other way, enough who were willfully participating and helping to cover it up, that this dude was able to simply keep pushing through it and keep doing it to the point where he felt bulletproof. And it's sad and it's shameful. What's also shameful is the reaction of the black community to this especially initially when it happened. I remember three, two, three, four years ago when this really picked up steam again, right around the time Hannibal Burris basically just outed him again. It is interesting that it took a black male comedian to suddenly make people take notice of this, but this had been posited in numerous stories, pieces, features that Bill Cosby spent the 1970s, at least as it turned out, he did it for four decades. He spent time drugging women and raping them and then shaming them or threatening them into silence. And it just went on and on and on. And all you heard was all the bullshit, all the hotep nonsense about this is all made up to keep him from buying NBC. Can you believe that people actually believe that nonsense? That this is all some vast conspiracy to have kept Bill Cosby from buying NBC when a company could have just simply said, no, we're not going to sell to you. Like what kind of serpentine logic is that? 
you would much rather believe that there's some secret plot to keep this man from buying a television network than to believe that perhaps he sexually assaulted a bunch of women back in the 1970s and 80s and 90s and all the way up to the mid 2000s. So shame is on a lot of us for enabling it. It's no different than what Larry Nassar was doing at Michigan State University, except Nassar did it for 25 years. Cosby did it for twice as long, 50 years. He skated on this. And we refused to believe the stories of women. Hell, I saw it after the verdict came down yesterday. There's still simpletons out here. Some of them actually women, black women, insisting that this is all a lie. It's all made up. They just wanted to take his money. And even if he raped them, so what? They should have said something sooner. Meaning that there's a statute of limitations on this thing. That if a woman doesn't speak up, and by the way, you wonder why they won't speak up. Because if they speak up instantly, you're just trying to take him down. You're just trying to take his money. What were you doing there? So of course, in the face of basically being called a liar, despite the fact that there's all sorts of evidence that it happened, women are scared and shamed into silence. And then finally, years later, they finally muster up the courage to say something to then be met by the same simpleton saying, huh, why did you wait so long? We would have believed you if you said something sooner, which is bullshit. This is what this is. I don't feel a single solitary stitch morsel or nugget of sorrow for Bill Cosby. He's a pious, old, fraudulent, hypocritical bastard who made his hay on portraying himself to be the ideal, respectable black man. Shame on you. Shame on you, Bill. Shame on you, Camille, because she also was in on it. She knew what was going on. She enabled it for years and looked the other way. Shame on anybody who actually stands by still and supports him or thinks that because he did the Cosby show, it balances it out. The f is wrong with you people? What's wrong with you? Where's your, where, where, where's your common sense and humanity? Shame on you who thinks that this is some conspiracy to take down a black man. I don't give a shit if this dude is black, brown, Asian, white, native, to do what he did, he deserves the buckle. And it looks like he's going to get something. He's 80 years old. If you gave him even 10 years in the pokey, that's probably a life sentence. But he got away for 50 years. 50 years. I don't even know what the hell to think. 50 years. 1968. He did this shit when LBJ was president still. Four decades. And woman after woman comes forward. And the first thing out of most of your idiot mouths is, what took you so long? He couldn't have done it. He's Dr. Huxtable. F out of here. Bill Cosby is just another failed archetype. He's just another character. And we need to stop acting as if these TV characters, these performers, are the people they portray themselves to be. Bill Cosby was eventually sentenced to 10 years in prison. So if he somehow lives through that 10-year sentence, he'll be 91 years old when he gets out. A 91-year-old disgraced 
sex offender. And it couldn't have happened to a better individual. But there you have it. We've made it to the end of 2018. The type of year that it's one of those years that if I ever somehow get the wherewithal to write a book, man alive is this year going to take up a nice chunk of a chapter. I want to take a second to thank all of you. All of you who've had my back, who supported me all the way through unconditionally from day one. Those of you who've supported this show, those of you who've supported me, my work, wherever I've gone, who support me when I write for thegrio.com, who support the work I do for the Philadelphia Tribune, who support the work I've done on public radio and on on terrestrial radio, the stuff I did with Feel the Hunger and 96.5 and all my writing at the Detroit Free Press and MLive and everywhere else I've been, damn it. I appreciate it. This year has been the trial of a lifetime and to have made it all the way to the end of this thing i couldn't have done it without so many of you it's too many to name but i want to of course thank my man doc gillingsworth who produces the soundtrack of this damn thing awesome jones who does the open of this show to all of you around the friggin world coast to coast on both hemispheres who listen to this damn thing and support this show and i want to thank you so much sincerely and seriously I I can't stress that enough. We've made it through 2018. It's New Year's Eve, damn it. Some places as this show drops, it's already 2019. Wonderful world of time zones. Whatever the case may be, I say this one more time for 2018. Take care of yourself. God bless. Always dare to be different. Always have your pets spayed or neutered. Adopt, don't shop. And we are out of here for 2018. Episode 92. Noventa y dos is coming at you in about 10 days as we set off 2019 with the annual Detroit Lions true postmortem. Until next time, Happy New Year! I was pissed off. I was so mad, I called Richard Pryor's house up and said, yo, Richard, Bill Cosby just called me up and told me I was too dirty. And Richard said, the next time motherfucker called, tell him I said, suck my dick. <laughs> I don't give a fuck. Whatever the fuck make the people laugh, say that shit. I said, do the people laugh when you say what you say? I said, yes. He said, do you get paid? I said, yes. He said, well, tell Bill. I said, have a Coke and a smile and shut the fuck up. You're listening to the People's Podcast. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. This is JSC Radio. about that five-year-old who found his uncle's gun. The kid didn't know it was loaded. I heard on the news about that 14-year-old girl who was bullied online for like a year. She couldn't take it anymore, so she got her dad's gun from his nightstand. I heard on the news about that guy who broke into someone's house, stole a gun from the hall closet. He accidentally shot his cousin in the head. She killed herself. And later killed the owner of the store he was trying to rob. If you own a gun, you have a full-time responsibility. When you aren't using it, 
Be sure it can't get into the hands of curious children, troubled teenagers, a thief, or anyone else who might misuse it. Your family, friends, and neighbors are all counting on you. Remember, always lock it up. For more information on firearm storage safety, visit ncpc.org. This message brought to you by the National Crime Prevention Council, the Bureau of Justice Assistance, and the Ad Council.